The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Many writers have described the Confederacy as revolutionary. George Rabel describes the Confederacy as a revolution against politics. What does he mean? We'll talk about this when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. When I was 12, my father was killed in an industrial accident. At the Vacant lot. Way he worked. My mother insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to get an education. So she took a job uh, waiting tables at a parking garage to support us. She worked double shifts and on her break she would pick me up from the highway on-ramp and drop me off at the big office building and I'd spend hours and hours just reading books. I remember every Saturday we'd have breakfast at the parking garage and I'd tell her what I had read. And her eyes would just light up <laughs> because she knew I'd end up in college, not working at the vacant lot like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with George Rabel, author of Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, and other works on the Civil War and the Civil War era. We've been talking about the Battle of Fredericksburg in our first two segments, and we'll continue to explore that and other topics, but George, I want to ask a question that comes up seemingly week after week on this show, because uh, most of the authors who write books, including those published by uh, university presses, by major commercial presses, uh, who write the books that are about the Civil War, most of these authors are not professionally trained historians. Uh, they are journalists or uh, uh, lawyers very frequently, uh, or people who have other jobs, scientists, uh, not uncommon. Uh, and they just, they're interested in the war, and they write about it in their spare time, and they get published. Uh, whereas those of us who have been trained in professional historical research and writing and who spend theoretically all our time thinking about it, don't write much about the Civil War. Obviously, you're an exception. Uh, anyone on the show would be. But why don't academic historians write about the war? Well, I think there's actually a lot of academic historians writing about the war. I mean, if you look at the... There are 
what, 150 or more members of the Society of Civil War Historians now, which represents mostly academic historians, some public history people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is, though, a prejudice in academe against uh, Civil War history uh, on several counts. Um, uh, it's too popular. There's nothing new to be said on the subject. Uh, it's sort of trivial or hobby kind of history. Um, I think there's a kind of envy of the fact that Civil War books sell. Um, and I think there's a, there's some justifiable prejudice against Civil War history, because certainly there's plenty of bad Civil War history published, too. I mean, I don't think the you know, I don't think uh, all of the academic prejudice against Civil War history is unjustified, um, just as I don't think all the Civil War buff uh, prejudice against academic history itself is, is, is justified either. I think there's a kind of a, there's a kind of middle ground there. Well, but, that's, a, um, that's an interesting point, that it does cut the other way, that a lot of people who might be listening to the show uh, may be familiar with this, a suspicion that if you are an academic historian, you're uh, an elitist, uh, interested only in social history, uh, if it's not race, class, gender, you don't want to hear about right. it. Exactly. And that's not the case either, uh, you being an obvious example here, but uh, there are many of us in the field who do write uh, Civil War history, sometimes with a military focus, it's possible to cross both worlds uh, if it's done right, I think. It is. It is. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I am no great defender, uh, I would hasten to add, of academic history. I mean, I think a lot of academic history is 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 virtually unreadable uh, in terms of selection of topic and certainly in selection of, and certainly in the, in the writing style. And I think all academics, regardless of their particular field of history ought to try to write for more than, you know, 50 other people that know something about their their subject. So I'm not going to defend the, uh, I'm, I'm not going to sort of go into any broad brush defensive academic um, history, but, uh, you know, I think for the public to just sort of stereotype and dismiss academics, not to mention academic historians, I think that's equally misleading. I would agree. I, I, as, as you say it, I, I realize I assigned my uh, first-year uh, survey course students a book review, uh, and I, they let them select their own book, but I require it to be essentially an academic history from some topic in American history. And I've realized, uh, as I'm doing that this semester, I don't think I'll do it anymore, because it's really forcing them to read boring books <laughs> and turning them off. Uh, you know, they say, oh, can I read, you know, David McCulloch? Can I read, uh, uh, you know, the, these, uh, the, the Devil in the White City? Can I read these big popular books by non-historians? Uh, and they don't know the difference between an academic or non-academic historian. And I tell them, no, no, you must read something with footnotes that's really boring. And then surprisingly, they don't like history after that. Uh, I wonder why. So I, I may need to rethink that assignment in the future. But that, that is a problem, though, that too many of us do write in this, this, this fashion. During the break there, I suggested, uh, I referred to another book of yours, The Confederate Republic, and I will disclaim freely I haven't read it. Uh, so all I know is the title, and I'm just going to ask you about that. Uh, the subtitle, A Revolution Against Politics, uh, is this taking off where, where, from Thomas Emery? Is, uh, what is the argument in this book? 
Uh, actually, it's the most thesis-driven book I've written, which I'm not sure is a, necessarily a good thing, but the thesis is in the subtitle. But one of the things the Confederates were trying to do was to reform what they considered to be the evils not only of politics in general, but of partisan politics in particular. And so the Confederates never developed a party system such as existed in the old Union, and they really didn't want to. Uh, even the opposition to the Davis administration did not want to coalesce into any kind of organized political party. There was a kind of a anti-party consensus. In some ways, it was reminiscent of the United States in the late 18th century and the Founding Fathers' aversion to political parties. So in a nutshell, that's the thesis of the book. Now, I think, you know, it's a book that was published in 1994. I think uh, I would certainly concede at this point I probably wrote that thesis a little bit too hard, but I, I still think that was a that was an important part of the Confederate experiment. Well, certainly the uh, the Confederacy never found a manageable way to to harness their internal dissent to to uh, channel it uh, as parties did in the North, so it could at least be identified and compromised with and uh, uh, yeah, and worked some, out. There's 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 the historiographical controversy there is whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, the traditional story is told by David Potter, Eric McKittrick, was that this was a Southern weakness mm -hmm. to have a political party system, and that the political party system in the North was an advantage. Now, Mark Neely's recently raised questions about the Northern side, whether it was really to Lincoln's advantage or to the nation's advantage to have a, a, a strong opposition party, uh, whether that served the interests of the Union or not. One of the things I tried to argue in my book was that the lack of an opposition really helped the Davis administration uh, in many ways because his his opponents were never able to organize. Uh, Davis was able to get m virtually everything he wanted from Congress. Uh, he hardly ever had a veto overridden. Uh, in some ways, this strengthened his hand, even though... You know, today I think many of us sort of believe that the two-party system is a kind of a natural political organism that, uh, however much we may rail against politics, I think we still kind of believe in it or believe in the political parties in one way or another. But um, I'm not sure that would have strengthened the Confederacy at all. And I think their political system that they had actually in, in many ways served them pretty well. So by not having an opposition, or by not having an organized opposition, the, uh, essentially Davis was able to, to achieve what he wanted or to, if you'd had an organized opposition, they would simply be, a, be better at what they did. They would be more obstructionist. Yeah, they were not able to obstruct him on major pieces of, of legislation very effectively, even late in the war. And the, the counter-argument would be using the northern example that Lincoln could could co-opt the Democrats, could could form a union party. Would there was some there was a target there? It, it's it's like fighting a non-state enemy today. Uh, there's there's no there there. There's no target. There's just a bunch of individuals. Uh, Davis can never defeat his opposition because there's just there's there's just a bunch of individuals to work with. Though remember, Lincoln thinks he's going to lose, in the summer of 1864, Lincoln thinks he's going to lose the election. That's true. He, he does. Uh... And, and again, it's sort of like going back to Fredericksburg and, and 
people not knowing how it was going to come out at the time, I think it's easy to forget how depressed the Union cause was in the summer of 1864. And I, I, I don't think at that point Lincoln or the Republicans would have would have considered the Democratic opposition a great asset to the... I, I think that's a, a good observation. Um, let me ask you this. Are you working on anything currently uh, in this uh, area? I have just finished a manuscript which has the tentative title or Religious History of the American Civil War. And I think the title is sort of self-explanatory in a way. It deals with religion in the Civil War. I've sent it out to four experts in American religious history because, as with Fredericksburg, where I was a neophyte military historian, now I'm kind of a neophyte uh, historian of American religion. So I suspect I have made a lot of rookie blunders that I'm hoping these four readers will uh, make me aware, and then I can... I can correct them before they go off to the publisher. Well, that that would be a, a good thing to do. I, I, you surely then read Harry Stout's. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, Skip's one of the, you know, generously not only shared research information with me, but is 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 one of the people now reading my uh, my manuscript. And he, you know, it, it, he told me he'd originally set out. He he thought he'd write a religious history and end up writing a moral history of the war that has a really a different focus than my um, than my work does but it kind of illustrates that there's suddenly a, an interest in the religious aspects of the war which has been basically completely absent uh, it, it really has I, I think that book is one of the most important ones but I uh, and I've, I've written this in reviews it's not a secret I think it, it was riddled with errors on the military and uh, the political side that somewhat weakened his, his religious argument, but uh, having him read it for the religious side, I think, is a wise choice, and, and hopefully that will strengthen uh, what you've done. But I certainly look forward to reading that when it comes out. Well, what I what I what I what I'm trying to do there is is again look at it from the point of view of the, the people of the Civil War era who did believe that the war had enormous, at least a, a pretty large minority of people believe that the war had enormous religious significance and they and their religious faith was in turn used to interpret the causes and the course and the consequences well i think anyone who's read any number of civil war letters would would have to agree with you on, on that and i think it'll be uh i'm sure it will be a worthwhile contribution and one we'll all want to look at uh george we are unfortunately out of time uh, the hour always goes by too fast but i really want to thank you for being on the show today well it's been my pleasure very enjoyable and listeners you'll want to read about fredericksburg and you'll look forward as i am to george rabel's next book on the religious history of the civil war in the meantime thank you all for listening to civil war talk radio The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A.